Hello and welcome to Man on the Clap Monday by Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about the prospective Newcastle takeover. At the moment it's currently going through the fit and proper persons test with the league. The government have declined to get involved. And for me, I consider it a really sad thing. For as much as the joy that it's eventually going to give to Newcastle fans... The real deeper question is is whether that is worth what they are going to give up. When you are taken over, so effectively at the moment the breakdown is is that 80% of the club will be owned by the effectively the investment arm of the Saudi Arabian government. Uh, 10% is the billionaire Ruben brothers who have you know a certain amount of business interests in Newcastle and 10% Amanda Staveley who's the sort of a uh, fixer, bringer together of different groups who, who was the one who sort of facilitated the beginnings of this takeover. And what that shows is really how this is the the evolution of sports washing. So the the original point is is that with Man City and PSG and to an extent Chelsea there was a dem- a demand, a need for instantaneous success. It was a self-validation tool. You know, it's an element of the owner's egomania, using trophies as a, you know, kind of a phallic measuring stick for the super wealthy. So for Roman Abramovich taking over Chelsea, he wanted to win. He wanted to spend his money. He wanted to get the cash of being a Premier League owner, the fame from that, which helped, you know, really build his personal brand and his, you know, and his status in you know living in the UK with PSG there was a sense of wanting to tap into the you know, the glamour that PSG as a club intrinsically have when when they signed Ronaldinho in the early 2000s and the sense of using it to really boost the profile of Qatar they were going to use it as a way of you know building their sports network with be in sport and as a way as a gateway to eventually making a bid to host the World Cup which was successful and for Man City there was also the the need to show how well they could run the club how well they could organize it all those other bits and pieces so effectively they this desperation really showed they would they would sack managers very quickly they spend a huge amount of money it was really a race to the top whereby in taking over newcastle it's showing the that we're in the age of streaming we're in the where it's the journey not the destination so buying newcastle is effectively a way of making for a more compelling narrative. It's more bottoms up. It's an element of evolution. So even in the way how you're structuring the club, in having 10% being owned by the Rubin brothers, they have local knowledge, they have a profile locally. So they can be the faces of the organisation, even though they only own 10%. You know, By putting giving Amanda Staveley 10%, You've got female representation on the board. You've already started to tick some boxes that other, you know, the previous takeovers didn't have. You know, it's almost in a sense of the 
McDonald's eggs theory. So basically, you with McDonald's breakfasts, what you used to have with the eggs would be that it was white, it was the same height, and the yolk was always the same size, it was always a perfect circle. And eventually McDonald's, in the end, had to change the way how they had their you know, eggs supplied and prepared so that they were slightly less even every single time. So it wasn't that you could have the same egg in 250 countries and it would look identical. So in other words, there was a sense that by making these changes, by picking a club that hasn't had a huge amount of success, what you're trying to do is you're trying to capture people's imagination. You're capturing the general public's view of things. So they're used to an experience where you start at episode one and then you binge watch to episode ten, season two, season three. So in other words, it's not necessarily where you end up. Newcastle will inevitably end up winning stuff. That that's a guarantee. You can't. Your the amount of money that they are going to put in, you will move up the table. You will be you know competing in the top six Champions League. But what you'll do is that it will take longer. So in other words, there'll be some gallant failures along the way. And the sense that the, the, the longer it takes, maybe if it takes three or four years, the larger the explosion of joy on Tyneside will be, because they haven't won anything since 1969. So the point is is that... And what you have is you have the the element of nostalgia that is a large part of the sort of streaming culture, you know, Netflix, Amazon Prime. So really, it's going to have reminiscent of the 90s, you know, Kevin Keegan Newcastle teams. So in effect, it's almost as if it's like a sort of nostalgia, a period drama, when Newcastle was still a great team, competing at the top with your Man United, with your Arsenals. But it's going to be mod, you know, effectively using modern idioms. It's going to be, you know, it's going to involve you know huge amounts of youth expenditure, trying to really tap the talent that is you know in within the northeast. And in a way, it's trying to capture more neutral support. In other words, to sort of, you know, effectively the the desire that I think a lot of football fans, a lot of casual you know sports fans have, you know, to sort of right some wrongs. So in other words, to give Newcastle some success. You know, they you have the sympathy of the, you know, all the horrors of the Ashley regime. A lot of people are sick of the top six. They're sick of Spurs being nearly men. You know, the idea of Levy Nomics, the idea that there's they're never going to buy those two or three players they need to really get over the edge and actually win something. That, you know, eventually Harry Kane will leave. You've got Arsenal who have a disinterested owner. With Chelsea, it's tired it's repetitive you know eventually you know they'll rebuild they'll become successful you know roman will probably will sack the manager eventually and we'll start all over again you know and if you look at the the chat the sort of the nearest challenges to the top six you've had leicester who've already won we've already had our, our summer where leicester won the title and it was amazing you know, with wolves they're too small they're too provincial you know they don't have the infrastructure really to succeed to compete on a regular basis i mean their wage bill is something like 75 to 80 percent of turnover already and the turnover isn't going to grow big enough whereby with newcastle with the stadium you know there's room for them to grow that you know was wasn't ever pushed on by mike ashley which we'll go into probably in a little bit more deeper 
detail later in the podcast. So there's that wish fulfilling, that fulfillment that this now modern, this evolved form of sports washing is going to take. It's a bit like you know the thirty for thirty ESPN documentaries. It's almost the concept, the conceptualization would be this: What if I told you the ninety five ninety six Newcastle team won? So if you can re- recreate that to create this thrilling, fantastic team, so, yeah, with the backdrop of fifty five thousand, yeah, fifty two thousand Newcastle fans all wearing the replica shirts, the black and white stripes, right, reminding the better bits of the nineties, and then you know taking on all comers. That's going to capture people's imagination. This is going to take three or four years. That along the way they might win a league cup, an FA cup. They might even have a Europa League run. And that's going to that takes that longer period of time is going to get more people interested. It's a bit like you could use, you know, Marcelo Bielsa at Leeds as a case study into the impact of streaming on football. You know, in the documentary that surrounded Leeds United under you know, Baszler's first season. And the point is, is that if you take Leeds United Football Club in the last... If you take this truncated season that's likely to be cancelled and last season, should they have been promoted quicker than they are? Should they have gone up last season? Should they already be in a position where they're pretty much guaranteed promotion? Because at the moment, they have that kind of terrible run in sort of... January and February, and they've turned it around, but they're still not guaranteed. They're not the 105-point Sunderland team that were, you, know, you knew were going up. And the thing is, is that they would have probably been promoted had they had a Chris Shubin, or even a Neil Warlock. That, that kind of championship expert who knows how to get a club out of the championship. Yeah, they probably would have done, but it would have been more prosaic. It would have been based on the limitations. It would have been a slow, methodical... It would have been comparable to Siege Warfare. Whereby with Biasla, he offers the thrill of the cavalry charge. And it's this kind of limitless ideological football. You know, it's Icarus. It's the football of Icarus. It's flying too close to the sun. It's having two-thirds of a great season using the same players week after week in this full-blooded, you know, beautiful style of football that eventually you get those players get tired out that isn't the depth and then they fall. So they fall into the playoffs. So it's Icarian football. And it's in the style of a Greek tragedy, it's doomed to failure. So why why didn't Leeds fans go up in arms that they didn't get promoted automatically? That not only that, that they're in the playoffs, they were beaten by Derby quite easily, and Derby didn't even go on to win the playoff final. So it wasn't as if you could sit there at any point and say that Leeds lost to a better team or that you know they should have got promoted. So why didn't they you know go nuts at Biasla? Why was he put on the pedestal? Why was there this documentary about him and this team and and I think in the end what it comes down to this is that it plays on Lee's fans' desires to be seen as different, other. So the idea of the Dom Revy, dirty Leeds, that we are a different outfit to everybody else. You know, it kind of plays into their own self regard. So one of the things that I think Lee's fans kind of love the most is the idea that you have the personality cult which is Brian Clough 
fails to permeate Leeds, fails to permeate these players. They just ignore him. It doesn't work. He's a complete failure. You know, within weeks he's taken out of the football club. You then bring in you know, a new manager. And they then take leads further on. They still carry on winning titles. They get to a European Cup final. And so really, in a way, they're not that bothered about getting promoted. Yes, on the front side of things, they'll tell you that they wanted to be promoted. They were devastated by losing in the playoff semi-final. But the point is, is that in terms of their own self-regard, in the championship, they are special. They are intimidating. They are a big club. Going to Ellen Road, 40,000 people there. You know, they're a traditional big club. And having Biasla keeps them in the public eye. And it's, there's always going to be that hope of promotion. But in some ways, it's more uh, facsimile of achievement. You know, to some extent, I think they've become institutionalised in the Championship. It's been so long since they were in the Premier League. You know, really, their last season, I think, was the first season that Wayne Rooney was playing. You know, when Wayne Rooney made his debut. And I think, in some ways, it's almost a bit like, you know, red in the Shawshank Redemption in terms of being institutionalised. They're used to being in this place where they have a role, where they are powerful. Whereby, going up into the Premier League, you're going to have an entire generation of fans who have no memory of Leeds ever being in the Premier League, no memory of them being a big club, who aren't necessarily going to be scared of them, who are, are just going to think, well, they're not the top six, they haven't been in Europe, they haven't, uh, I haven't seen them play. You know, Ellen Road's going to look dowdy in comparison with the new generation of stadiums. I mean, take some Villa fans who were like, well, yeah, we're happy we're promoted, but you go from being the dominant team in the Championship where you're on Sky a lot, where you know, you know the away teams set themselves up to try and stop you. They're you know playing eight nine men behind the ball, and even scoring at Villa Park is considered an achievement. And then you go to the Premier League, where actually it's a struggle week in week out. There are going to be some weeks where you will get absolutely turned over, you know, battered, and you know the teams that you used to consider at the same level, you know, your Spurs. You know, your Chelsea, who you were in the, early, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, regularly you know, finishing above. And they're just light years away. They have brand new stadiums, brand new training grounds. And it becomes, and that's where the problem is, is that it's almost keeping hold of Biasla for Leeds is more important because it makes them more special, more interesting. It keeps the idea of Leeds being the other. And it fits into people's ideas of what they want from Leeds. They're quite happy to have this Leeds United who are in the championship. So you have these write-ups about you know his biasless style, his method, and you have the documentary. But it's not actually whether they get promoted or not. In other words, documentary is still successful regardless if they win with 105 points. Great, Biasler is a genius. Look at what he's done to Leeds. He's taken them to the promised land. If it fails and they are in lower mid-table, well, that's fine. This guy who has this fantastic you know, track record and this, you know, all these interesting quirks, this is how he's failed. Or the middle ground where it gets to the playoffs, that means that you can have all nine episodes, and at the tenth, they just fall at the end, which is the denouement, the ending that you kind of want. And it's a bit like you know the element with Sunderland Till I Die. 
the, the real underlying point is is that they were on to a winner from day one. If they'd got promoted, it would have made good TV. When they got relegated, it made good TV. Getting into the playoffs and going to Wembley twice and failing made good TV. And this is what the Saudi Arabians have worked out. Is that, yes, you could buy United or Spurs or Arsenal. And I'll go into that in a bit further detail. But that's not going to capture people's imaginations. It's not going to capture hearts and mind in the same way that Newcastle can do with their backstory. So if you take Sunderland to Idaho, people were interested. You know, the, the question that you could ask is, why didn't they buy Sunderland? Because at the moment, arguably speaking, Sunderland have a higher international profile than Newcastle. And this is where the, the sports washing element gets... You can see that there's a specific plan in place. So the thing is with Sunderland, Sunderland is the a Leave city. So it voted Leave in the in the referendum. It's poorer and it's less well developed than Newcastle. They're completely separate cities, but they have a but they're linked by a tram network, whereby Newcastle is far more prosperous. Voted Remain. So the point is, if you were to buy Sunderland, the problem you would have is that it would look incongruous. You'd have the situation where you'd have a world-class Champions League team playing in the stadium, like which is a pretty good stadium. You know, they have the world-class training ground, as you've seen from Sunderland to I Die. But you would then be on the backdrop of this damaged city that's had so many things go wrong. You know, there's large amounts of unemployment. There's you know low educational attainment, low amount of government spending. There's so many different bits and pieces and problems. So there's going to be more room for protest. People saying, well, how come this mega wealthy you know, investment arm has taken Sunderland to the upper levels? As many as as much as the fans would go nuts for it and would enjoy being back in the Premier League and enjoy all the trappings, it would still look weird to have that kind of money poured into the football club but not the city. It would be a weird backdrop. There's more room for protest. Even the sort of the community spending, it wouldn't cover the underlying issues afflicting Sunderland. It wouldn't bring back the mines, it wouldn't bring back those type of jobs. And so what it comes down to is the, the PR aspect. Newcastle will look good on European nights. It's a city centre stadium. You've got the Metro. You've got the world-class university. You have the entertainment hub that has been, you know, brings a lot of money, a lot of visitors into Newcastle. You've got the airport with its direct flights to China. And so what that allows is, is that you would have the situation where they would be tapping into the pre-existing narrative of the city's comeback. They'd be the new owners bringing joy, hope, on and off the field. So yes, there is poverty in Newcastle, but it's kind of outside of the bubble of the city centre. So it looks better from a PR standpoint. So the point is, if you put in, let's say, £50 million worth of charitable spending on, you know, changing rooms, on, you know, five-a-side pitches, on... You know, clubhouses on you know, re-establishing you know sort of eleven aside leagues on improving the facilities at these eleven aside park grounds. That's going to go a lot further in Newcastle than it would in Sunderland. In Sunderland, that's a just a drop in the ocean 
but for Newcastle, it fits in better. So you're not just impacting the city, you're impacting the region. And this is one of the elements that I think is interesting, is that if you look at it, you've already had rumours that they're going to spend a huge amount of money in the transfer window. And you've had, you know, discussions saying that there's going to be community spending. But effectively, that's a rumour rather than a guarantee. And yet you've already got a situation where the fans aren't questioning it. They aren't going to hold the new owners to account over this. They're not saying, OK, we need to see some plans before we support this. How much money are you putting into the community? Where are you going to put it in? That hasn't really happened from what I can see from my side of things, reading about it and looking into it. In the end, you're getting a situation where the fans are pretty much already spending the money on who they want. I even saw one graphic that seemed to suggest they're going to buy Kylian Mbappe. And in a way, what that's doing is you're weaponising the fans' longing. You know, effectively, it's the fig leaf of fan democracy, i.e. it's the will of the fans. It's not the owner's egomania. So, in other words, the fans want Steve Bruce sacked, therefore we will sack him. Even though, let's face it, at best, he's going to have the remainder of the season with a squad that he can't make any changes to, can't bring anybody in. It's a squad that hasn't had, you know, is weak in multiple areas, lacks experience, there's nothing that he can do in those nine games that is likely to be able to for him to save his job. Even if they win nine out of nine, the likelihood is the Newcastle fans don't want him. They want a Pochettino. They want an Allegri. They want someone who will bring back the you know, the fame that used to be with Newcastle when you had Keegan, Dalglish, Hullet, Bobby Robson. Names that were well-known all across football. So... In that sense, the owners won't be seen as the egomaniacs in the way that Abramovich was when he first sacked Mourinho, or when the Man City board, you know, sacked Man City. Well, sorry, sacked Mark Hughes to bring in Man City when Mark Hughes hadn't done particularly much wrong. But it will be far more fan-led, and they'll be able to sort of take a back seat to it, which I think brings us on to the Mike Ashley kind of summing here up his ownership of Newcastle. I think the real question is was his regime so bad? Was his reign as owner really that awful? And I've I've always had the view that Mike Ashley bought the club when he was too young. He was still, you know, still massively invested in Sports Direct. If you look at what he'd done in the last 10 years in terms of trying to buy you know, Debenhams, trying to you know, really buy up as much of the, the high street, the distressed parts of the high street, the bits that used to be British institutions on the high street. He still has not reached that point in his business career where he's retired, where he wants to just sell up, get the, get his money, and then spend the rest of his life on, you know, whether it be philanthropy, whether it be owning a football club. There was a sense of, it was a very impetuous decision. You know, it was very much spur of the moment. You know, he just was in London, decided, I'm, you know, it was on the table, and he decided to buy the club, but he hadn't even looked at the books. It was only after he'd purchased the club that he started to go through the, you know, the financial records, 
and really discovered that there was some holes, that there was lots of problems at Newcastle that at first glance wasn't obvious to you know football economists weren't casual weren't to the casual fan or journalists. So he's all, I find him a very fascinating character. This is someone that basically opened up a sports shop in Kent. And if he said on that first day when he's got his sports shop, his one sports shop, you know, and it's not in like the biggest part of Kent, and just would go to him, one day you're going to own Lonsdale, Slazenger, you're going to own Newcastle United, you're going to have shops all across the country, you're going to own Debenhams. It would be scarcely believable. Scarcely out of his wildest dreams. And yet... There's there's almost... I almost consider him like Two-Face from the Batman. In the sense that there's part of him that just wanted to own a football club. Wanted to own Newcastle. It's a big club, big stadium, big history. And yet there's this other part of him. So in other words, once he when he first starts, you know, he does all of the populist moves that a, a new owner makes. Tries to spend some money in a transfer window. You know, turns up wearing the shirt, guzzling pints. You know, chat sitting with the fans. Brings back Kevin Keegan. You know, brings you know really revive. You know, brought a huge amount of you know passion back into Newcastle. It was the return of King Kev, and yet. Why, sort of within the first season and the first bits of criticism, that's when he's at this turning point. When he can either basically sell the club for a loss and just put his hands up and say, I've bitten off more than I can chew, or he was going to put huge amounts of money, even if that meant that he would end up one day having to sell Sports Direct. He was at that turning point of what to do. And in the end, he decides that he wants to sell it, but he's only going to sell at a price that is right for him. And then at this point, it's as if I'm going to run this as a business. I am not going to run this in any way, shape or form different than I would do Sports Direct. And running a football club like a business in that way, football clubs are, yes, they are businesses, but it's not the same. Yes, they have, you can call it a customer base, but a fan base is different. There's different qualities, there's different expectations and for me personally he showed that many of the expectations of ownership are fundamentally worthless or overvalued to a to an extent so in other words you know one of the sort of first key parts of ownership is being liked by the fans you know in the end he was hated by the majority of newcastle fans but the majority of match-attending fans still turned up, in spite of Ashley. So, in other words, it didn't hit hurt that bottom line onto it. You know, the element that you have to have ex-players, you know, on the side. You have to keep them on the side. You need to keep them around the club. So, you know, he hires Keegan. He, you know, hires Shearer. And they treated Kevin Keegan badly. There's lots about Mike Ashley's ownership that I don't like that I think was wrong, you know, the fact that they had to pay him £2 million in compensation from an employment tribunal shows they treated him badly. But Kevin Keegan's Spells manager wasn't was only partially successful at best. Shearer failed as a manager, and he was uninterested in managing them in the championship. So, 
yes, not having Keegan or Shearer anywhere near the club as you know, club ambassadors, having them in the stands, it didn't really matter. They still, they're still a Premier League club. They're still an established Premier League club. You know, the idea that relegation is the end of the world. Yes, there was two relegations. I'd argue the first relegation was probably a lot more down to the, you know, hangover from the Shepherd to John Hall years. But there was two automatic promotions, neither of which required the playoffs. They won the championship twice, fairly comfortably. And both of the times they were back into the Premier League, they were re-established in the Premier League seamlessly. And if you compare that with when West Ham were relegated, and both times they had to go up through the playoffs, one year they got to the player final and lost to Crystal Palace. You know, how difficult, if you look at how long Leeds have spent, you know, in the first season back in the Championship, they got to the playoff final, lost to Watford 3-0, and have never come anywhere near closer until, you know, the Biasley years. You know, they spent some time in Division 2, you know, in League 1. So have Leicester, so have Wolves. You know, he's just... He, you know, yes, relegation was painful, yes, it was embarrassing, but it wasn't a game-changer. They immediately went straight back up. In fact, in some points, getting relegated allowed them to get rid of quite a lot of dross and allowed them to, you know, use some younger players, you know, Andy Carroll making his, you know, kind of first major impact as, you know, a championship player. And even then, it sort of bleeds into the idea that, you know, infrastructure spending is critical to staying up in the Premier League. You know, like training grounds, youth development. And, well, he just kept the youth system running, not huge amounts of money into it, but then you've still got, you know, Matty Longstaff, Sean Longstaff. They've had some, you know, decent young players come through. And really what he did was a cost-benefit analysis, i.e. how much money would I have to spend to go from mid-table to, you know, competing for the Europa League, competing for the top six, and he was correct in working out that he had nowhere near enough money to compete with the top six, which is where the huge money is. So really the difference between 13th and 10th or 9th or even 8th isn't a huge amount. You'll get a bit more sky money, you'll get a bit more prize money from the league, you, you, might, you might sell a few more shirts, but the amount of money it costs to go from you know, 13th to 8th, how you know? In other words, if it costs you forty million pounds and you get forty-one million pounds back, that's not particularly valuable. You know, if you compare it to West Ham and how much money West Ham have spent, you know, in terms of wages, in terms of updating their training ground, in terms of buying, you know, getting you know expensive managers in, has it made them any better? Not really. You know, in the intervening time period under Mike Ashley, you know. They've gone to a UEFA Cup quarter-final. They've finished fifth in the league. That's better than West Ham. And if you think about how much money Everton have thrown into it, and yet how many more points better off are Everton? And they've run up huge, huge debts. You know, lots of different managers, lots of money spent on transfers, on agents' fees, on salary. And yet, they're only a handful of positions better than often Newcastle. You know, the point is, is that Mike Ashley, you know, if you're looking at his legacy, has sold, you know, the club to wealthy owners who are able to progress the club substantially. So, broadly speaking, he has left them in the Premier League, he's left them without huge amounts of debt, they've still got the stadium, and they're about to be taken over by a club, by an ownership group, 
that have the desire to push Newcastle right into the stratosphere. The point is, is that politicians who tell the unvarnished truths rarely get thanked or re-elected. The point is, that his, the worst bit that he did was that he basically ran it as a business and he robbed the hope from Newcastle fans. And that's the cruel and unconscionable bit of it. You know, by just you know, in the end he's gonna make a huge profit from having owned Newcastle United. And yet, because he told the truth to Newcastle, because he told the truth that finishing thirteenth and finishing eighth, there isn't a huge amount of difference. You know, that the FA Cups weren't that important from a financial standpoint. And it's true. Look at the FA Cup what it is now. Man City have won the last two League Cups. They've won the last FA Cup. It, the FA Cup is not something that you can use as a mid-table team to boost your season. You might get to a semi-final and get battered by Man City. You might get battered by you know, Chelsea. You might get to the final and you might lose 7-0 like Watford did. Sorry, 6-0. Nearly 7. But that's the point. It's so... That's not going to help. That's not going to push the club on any further. It'd be lovely to win a trophy, but that wasn't going to push them into the next level. Winning the FA Cup at this current time doesn't do that for you, where it might have done historically. You know, Newcastle haven't won a trophy in 50 years since the 69 Fairs Cup. You know, Ashley's reign, in comparison with Newcastle his broader history, which is beset by regular relegations, you know, lots of mid-table finishes in Division 1, and brief bursts of success. So in the 1910s, they won the league a few times, won the FA Cup. In the early 50s, they won the FA Cup. And yeah, there's a spell in the mid-1920s. Other than that, they had lots of years where they were in Division 2 for you know, three or four seasons. They would you know, they had the odd season where they'd finish in the top seven, but that was the rarity. And so if you look at it, in terms of Mike Ashley's actual... Finishes. So from when he buys the club, it's 12th, 18th relegation, first in the championship, 12th, 5th, qualified for the UEFA Cup, got to the UEFA Cup quarter-final, and they were unlucky against Benfica, who eventually got to the final. They weren't a million miles away. I think they were one or two goals away in the second leg at home from getting to a European semi-final. It was then 10th, 15th, 18th, relegated first in the championship, and then 10th, 13th, and this season they were kind of lower mid-table. But if, you know, the point is, yes, the in comparison, the Freddie Shepherd and John Hall years were magical. But they, you know, the end point of it is, is it was entirely unsustainable. So in other words, you know, by the time Mike Ashley looks at the books, they're in trouble. That's contributed to their first relegation. So if you look at the numbers from when they first got promoted... To the Premier League. You kind of have a four year spell. You know, under Keegan. Where it's the great years. Where they spend quite a bit of money. And, and there was room for them to do so. In other words Blackburn fell off. You, you know, Arsenal hadn't yet managed to get you know, Wenger. There was room for. You know, for a There was a void. There was. There was a power vacuum that allowed Newcastle. That Newcastle filled. So you know they go third in their first season. Six. Second. Second. So that's the kind of the, the glory years where they nearly won the league, and then you get you know you, the transition from Keegan's resignation to Dalglish. So you get thirteenth, thirteenth, both times FA Cup finalists. But in those finals, they didn't really lay, lay a glove on the great United team that won the treble. 
didn't lay a glove on the Arsenal team that won the double. Yeah, no, no, nothing to be ashamed of. Then it goes 11th, 11th, at which point Bobby Robson takes over, and they go 3rd, sorry, 4th, 3rd, 5th, 14th, 7th, and then 13th. So the point is, is that you've really got, in all of that time span, four seasons, you know, really, I'd say, what, seven seasons, where they are, you know, not mid-table. The rest of the time you've got, you know, 11th, 13th, 14th, 13th. You know, that's the point. It, it was reliant on local legends. So you had Bobby Robson, who was a great manager, who had, you know, that local... You know, he was a local boy. He was, you know, loved managing Newcastle. He was a great manager. You know, Kevin Keegan had his, you know, points that he was able to attract players. He was able to build, you know, this momentum. You know, they spent large amounts of money. You know, Robson inherited, you know, Shea Given, Alan Shearer, Gary Speed. You know, even, you know, Robson himself spent quite a bit of money. You know, they spent six million on Genus, six million on Titus Bramble, seven million on Craig Bellamy, 9.5 million on Lauren Robert. And we're talking about the late 90s, early 2000s at this juncture, early 2000s at this juncture. So really, the point is, is that the real conclusion is Newcastle need big money to challenge the top six. That's always been true, really, in the Premier League era. You know, the point is, is that this is Mike Ashley's revenge. In that, you know, what he had with Newcastle fans was a balance of terror. Ashley needed Newcastle to stay up, to be profitable, and to retain its value as a sellable asset. So in other words, he was only going to get good money for them if they were a Premier League, established Premier League club. So he spent enough money, you know, in terms of he hired Rafa the Gaffer. You know, he gave money to Alan Pardew. You know, he tried to create enough of an infrastructure, even though it was relatively skeletal, but it was enough to say, I'm going to buy young players that have sell-on value so that you know, we can keep this as profitable as possible so that we've got the best chance of staying up within the set budget that I have established. And the Newcastle fans needed Newcastle to remain in the top flight. They needed them, you know, from a local perspective. They want new. They see Newcastle as being a big club, a big top-flight Premier League football club. And if no one turned up, and if that money was you know, basically not in the Newcastle club coffers, they would go down. You know, that was the, the end point. If, if you take Newcastle historically, that's what happens. Newcastle can go down. There is nothing you know, that is... That, you know, if you take the top six where relegations are rare, so you get the Spurs relegation in the 70s, the United relegation in the 70s, Arsenal have never been relegated yet. Years, you know, Everton have spent years in the top flight. Yeah. Newcastle don't have that historical guarantor. So they have to turn up so that yeah, Ashley could keep them and they could keep them in the Premier League. That's a balance of terror. But this, the, it left the fans as the spiritual owners. Of the, you know, they were the ones that were the, the guardians of the club and its traditions. Yes, Ashley was the owner, but he was only ever, you know, holding on for somebody else to sign and to, you know, buy the club. And now the point is, is that yes, they have now, you know, they've sold, you know, Ashley sold it 
to this owner who's going to put in money and glory is virtually guaranteed that it's compromised the Toonami in their integrity, in their social ethos. They are now political actors in, you know, a sports-washing scenario. And by what I mean by Mike Ashley's revenge is that no matter how much Newcastle fans hated Mike Ashley, they were still their club. You know, he was still reliant on them turning up. You know, he was only ever going to be there for a short period of time, and then he will move on, and the club will carry on. And, you know, as much as you want to criticise him, you know, taking away the hope from Newcastle fans, I think that's the worst bit about it. Yes, he told them the truth. Yes, it was broadly within Newcastle's, you know, historical status in the canon of English football but taking away that hope you need some belief and having someone sit there and go you're never going to be successful is dispiriting and you know it, I'm glad that he's no longer going to be a part of English football there are lots of things about you know Sports Direct and Mike Ashley that I grudgingly can respect he, you know that the amount of success that he's had I don't like the way how he does it, to be completely, brutally honest. But he, this is the world that we live in where, actually, you know, Sports Direct is one of the only sports shops that you can go to on the high street. You know, if, there, if he wasn't there, you don't have a Slazenger, you don't have a Lonsdale. Whether, you know, having a cheaper version of Lonsdale trainers, cheaper version of, you know, Slazenger tennis rackets, it's better than nothing in certain respects. So what's happened, and this is where the key element is, is that Newcastle United are now a brochure football club. Brochurisation is basically when a club's history is only relevant or relatable in order for the owner to buy the club. So in other words, when Manchester City were taken over by Abu Dhabi, what that meant was is that the club would be run in a way that is completely different to anything that happened before. Anything before that, before the owners took over, is ancient history. Manchester City's value to Abu Dhabi was this. You have the stadium. So the stadium was built. All you'd need to do is really build a training ground. But it was the opportunity to overtake Manchester United as the blue ribbon English club side. That was the ultimate validation. If they could do if they could overtake Sir Alex Ferguson, if they could put Man City who'd been nowhere, who'd been in Division Two, who'd been a laughing stock, who'd been behind Manchester United for the best part of a generation. The point is, when you buy bought, bought a club in 2008, your publicity was in winning. In other words, the quicker that you could win, the quicker that you could hoist the trophy in front of you, the fans going mental, that was the sign of, you know, success. And so, you know, their political needs was in sports watching, but also a way of how they did it. So it had to be organisational competence. It then had to lead to aspirational excellence so that's working towards pep having the situation so having the training ground having the youth team having everything right and all so that when pep turned up there'd be champions league football there'd be great youth players to work with unlimited transfer budget 
he would then put the football that they wanted. So, yes, they won titles under Mancini, and that was nice, and that was glory, and that was great. Yeah, they won it under um, you know, Pellegrini, and that was great, but Pep was what was going to make things... You know, everyone was going to have to respect Man City and the awesomeness of their football. So in many ways, the the Man City fans were an afterthought. In, in some ways, in some ways, you can even argue that they were a hindrance. You know, they've failed to sell out some of their big matches at home, their big European matches. There's been a lack of atmosphere. You know, they've booed the UEFA anthem. And in some ways, the only real generational moment or quality in terms of broadly popular appeal for Man City was the Aguero goal versus QPR to win it in the last seconds. That was a generational moment. That's when all of the pain that Man City fans had suffered through the years of watching Ferguson win the Champions League, win the league every year, win doubles, win the treble, you know, all of the suffering was worth it for that moment when you think you're just about to lose it. You're like, seconds away from Manchester United winning the title again. And then you get a lot, your, you know, your best striker scores a last second goal. And most people were happy. You know, Man United won so many trophies and it was nice to see Man City get their moment. You know, they'd been through lots. You know, you'd have the Alan Ball years. You had the Francis Lee ownership. You know, taking the ball to the corner against Liverpool in the last game of the season when they needed the score to stay up. But that didn't go anywhere. In other words, we were all happy that that happened. We were glad that they had their moment in the sun. But that's it. It didn't go anywhere else. You know, they're a city, our team, and a club that is respected, but they're not loved, because. In some ways, it's an element of artificiality about it. We know that it's the money from Abu Dhabi that has made the difference, that has got them the players that they have now. So when we look, so where the evolution of sports washing is, is now the value is in the narrative. So the, the documentaries, the behind the scenes bit. In other words, how the glory will look for when Newcastle do well. So really, what Newcastle's brochure is, is the element of being unique. They're the only major regional football team in the UK. So in London, you have Spurs, you have Arsenal, Chelsea, West Ham, you know, Charlton, all these other clubs dotted around. In Manchester, you have City, United. In Birmingham, you've got City, Birmingham City, Villa, and all the other satellite parts of the... West Midlands, so West Bromwich, Wolverhampton. With Liverpool, you've got the Redmen, you've got Liverpool FC, and you've got Everton. Whereby Newcastle, you've got Newcastle. Yes, Sunderland, massive rivalry, but Sunderland are based on Wearside. So that's the River Weir. Sunderland are based on the Tyne. Sorry, Newcastle are based on the Tyne. They're the Geordies. So in other words... It's, they're not sharing the same city. In other words, Sunderland fans live in Sunderland, Newcastle fans live in Newcastle, and the surrounding region. They're a regional club. Probably the, the closest example for regional clubs would be Rangers and Celtic. But there's community limitations in terms of you know, Celtic being seen as a Catholic team, Rangers being seen as a Protestant team, and the fact that they're intrinsically interlinked. You know, it's you know, yin and yang. 
it's not we're separating them both. It's the old firm as a collective, whereby Newcastle is a lot more closer. So the best analogy I would have would be like New England. So you have the Boston teams, the Boston Red Sox, the Boston Celtics, you know, Boston Bruins, the New England Patriots, who were based in and around Boston. So it's not just a city that celebrates, but it's a region. And it produces you know, better optics. You have the passion devoted solely to the team from the whole city. You know, basically, when City win, half of Manchester doesn't celebrate. And it magnifies the heartbreak. If you think of the Red Sox, it's you know, the Bucky Dent home run. Bill Buckner, go, the ball going through his legs. But when they eventually win in 2004, the catharsis was that much bigger because you'd had this era of heartbreak. And the point is, is that if you compare Newcastle to Sunderland, sorry, to Southampton, yeah, Southampton don't share the city of Southampton with anybody else. Portsmouth are down the road. But I don't think Southampton are the dominant team in, in Hampshire. Yes, they have fans you know, out from the surrounding sort of areas, but there's no sort of culture of what, you know, what do you call people from Southampton? They're just people from Southampton. You don't have the sort of cultural importance of the Toon Army, you know, the Geordies, you know, the idea of Newcastle being a party city. You have Geordie Shore, you have that instant recognition. You, know, you have the instantly recognisable colour scheme, black and white stripes. So it's Juventus, Newcastle. Yeah, you could say Notts County, but they're no longer relevant. You know, they've been in constant in the lower leagues for the last, you know, pretty much since they were relegated out of Division 1 in the early 90s. They're now in the conference. They're not even a football league club anymore. So that's what Newcastle bring in terms of the the backstory of it and the heartbreak of the Keegan era, you know, losing cup finals, having not won something since 69. But in terms of sports washing, they're, they're still quite a small club. You know, Mike Ashley didn't spend any money on you know, getting Newcastle a, sort of a major foreign fan base. You know, as much as the, the Kevin Keegan team you know, was interesting in the 90s and got quite a few you know, fans from outside of Newcastle, it's still not something that is globally recognised in comparison, you know. And so we really ask the question, well, why not Manchester United or, or even Spurs? Why not buy club those clubs? And the point is, is that with Manchester United, to start off with, you've got a much larger global fan base, a much larger presence. So there's the failure of narrative. So if they... So if the... Saudis had taken over Manchester United. The first demand would be to put United back to their rightful place. There'd be an intense pressure. And then the second point would be to replicate the success of the Ferguson dynasty, which is really virtually impossible in the current European political settlement, football settlement. You've got huge, you know, Barcelona, huge Real Madrid, Juventus, PSG. You have... Man City, you know, all of, with, with owners with huge pockets. So the idea of one club winning seven out of nine titles is really unlikely. So you'd always then, in a way, so you're never, and would you even be able to find a second coming of Ferguson? So that's the problem. So there'd be, the, the owner would just be seen as a means to an end. You'd just be the one, 
you know, there would be, there'd be less gratitude. You would be the continuation of a glorious history. You're not making new history. So that's less valuable from a PR narrative standpoint. There's going to be more scrutiny, more criticism of you know, sports washing if you take over Manchester United. So even if it goes well, you're still only just going to be one owner out of, you know, you're still going to be struggling in the shadow of the Ferguson years. Okay, so you decide to take over Spurs. The problem is, is that the infrastructure is already in place. You know, you were just the cherry on top, the last piece in the puzzle. You know, effectively, you know, you're finishing off Levy's work, so you're not going to get a huge amount of credit for that. You're just going to be the guy signing the check for the five players that Spurs need to get on to the next level, to keep Harry Kane. So had you been there four years earlier when they were competing with Leicester and and Chelsea for the title, you would have basically wrote out £150 million budget by the three or four players they need to have that depth, the winning mentality, and go ahead and win the title. And as a result, you don't... You know, the, the turnaround would be a lot quicker. But then there's not as much narrative build-up. Spurs had already got to the Champions League final. They've already had these great moments under Pochettino. It would just be a continuation of a journey that has been mostly completed. So that doesn't have the same level of interest. Same level of, you know, pe- you know Spurs have been in the top four now for the best part of, you know, round, round the sort of top six for the best part of ten years now. So really, to conclude, the Saudis are purchasing the authenticity and the passion of the Toonami. So the point is, is that, you know, Man City fans, the, the, the hardcore, so the people that were there when they were in Division 2, losing at home to Lincoln City, who were there when you know, they came back in the last few minutes of Wembley in the, in the Division 2 playoff final against Gilligan to cut that brilliant comeback victory. Yes, they are the, the hardcores, they go to the games, they make a lot of noise, but them I wouldn't say the minority, but that's it. They're, they're the hardcore. In other words, if there's still 2,500 2, seats not being so, you know, having to be sold on the day for their Champions League quarter-final you know, home, second leg against Spurs, you've not captured the imagination. You know, the fans aren't as loud. It, there is always that element of artificiality. They know that you know the success behind it is really the success of the owners putting that money in to build that infrastructure. And that they're not massively important. In other words, Man City would win most of their games even if they were playing in an empty stadium. It's like the success Monaco have when Monaco are great. Their home games are sparsely attended. 10,000, people. They don't make a huge amount of noise. So by buying the, the Newcastle, you're buying the Toon Army. So the quid, quid pro quo is the Saudis are saying, we will provide you the glory, but you have to provide the, the backdrop. So that means that you know, on a weekday, ordinary morning, 40,000 of you have to turn up to see a superstar being prayed at St. James's Park. You have to be there with your Newcastle shirt on, your Newcastle scarf, just to see some guy in a suit vaguely walk around the pitch 
maybe do a couple of keepy-uppies, raise the scarf above their head, and wave at you. Take a couple of selfies. And 40,000 people have to basically take a day off work to do that. You, you need to have the hundreds and thousands of black and white, you know, clad revellers in the city centre streets for the inevitable victory parade. That's what Newcastle will have to bring. They have to bring back all of those memories of the passion of Newcastle fans going mental whenever Kevin Keegan would turn up. You need that. That's what they, the Saudis need. So they can say, we were the ones that delivered you from the awfulness of Mike Ashley, where you hadn't won anything for 50 years, where you, you know, it's almost been nearly a generation since you meaningfully competed with United, where you were finishing second, where you were beating Barcelona in the Champions League with Tino Espria. They're purchasing the heartbreak from selling Waddle, selling Gascoigne, the Keegan years, the Wembley defeats of Dalgleish. But that's now been sold. So the fan experience, the fans, the, the Toon Army, it's now performative. It needs to create a compelling narrative that sports washes the Saudi regime. So every time a Newcastle you know, have a comeback in Europe or when they're battling for the title and they've had this run from being nowhere, being 13th in the league, being relegated a couple of times and what you'll now have is the, the Amazon documentaries. You're going to have Netflix documentaries you know, where you're going to have these pans of the crowd going mental. That's what they need that Man City you know, in, don't have. And can't really produce. No, the second the Toon Army didn't protest the sale, they've lost any leverage they have over the new owners. So the point is, is that from what I've seen, most fans are, are just delighted that they're going to be rid of Ashley. And I get that. I really, honestly, I can I fully understand where you're coming from. And the excitement, the idea that you're now going to be big players again. You're going to buy superstars. You're going to have a great manager. You might end up with a Pochettino, an Allegri. But by not kicking up of it, by not creating a media issue, by being fairly pliant... Okay, I've, I've heard enough... I think the, the average response is this. Oh, I'm delighted that we're, we're gone with Ashley. It's going to be exciting to see what's going to happen. Uh, I, I have some caveats about, you know, the, uh, the the regime, but, you know, the concerns, but not verbalised. There's not been petitions. They've not gone to the local MP. They've not, you know, broadly speaking, there hasn't been a huge outcry regarding it. And so if you compare that, you take then the, the relative failure of the Ashley protest. So in other words, most Newcastleites hated Mike Ashley. But those protests didn't go anywhere. They didn't force Mike Ashley out. They didn't force him to change. It shows you that the, the loyalty to the badge is strong. Even like the Freddie Shepherd incident. You know, it didn't stop Newcastle fans turning up. It didn't stop them. You know, they were outraged at the time, but things were smoothed over pretty quickly after that. And as a result, you know, the Saudis are going to exploit that. They're going to exploit that you're not going to kick off. And now, and once you are successful... The chances of anyone kicking off is gone because there's going to be some money spent on that's going to help the local community. You're going to get a new training ground. You're going to get more, you know, young players coming through. You're going to get superstars now. And but the thing is, and some 
couple of the um, Newcastle fans were saying, well, this is going to help liberalise the regime. And it's like, no. You're, at, you're going to be the cover to allow the repressive elements to continue. The executions, you know, stopping of protesting, you know, having trials that, you know, basically are shams. You know, for Newcastle, as has happened to City, their well-earned history, the city, the heartbreak of City, all of the, the failures, you know, the Oasis years, where they were singing, you know, we've got Alan Ball to, to the you know, sound of Wonderwall. And the pain of being in League 2, the embarrassment, much in the same way that the Newcastle being relegated, you know, having to sell your best players. That history is now going to be subsumed. It's going to be marginalised. Because the, the political aims that the owners now have, you know, require Newcastle fans to engage fully. You have to be... You have to be the Toon Army. You have to be passionate. You have to fulfil all of the, the, the classical stereotypes. Replica shirt wearing. You know, making a huge amount of noise. You know, n- you know, Newcastle or death. You know, that it's the most important thing. It's almost like Newcastle United Football Club is a member of the family. And the real question is, is that for all of the... the nightmare that was the Ashley years, it was still your club. You know, by turning up, by not liking Mike Ashley, by you know, everything else, as no matter what Mike Ashley did, he couldn't take that club away from you. But now, that club has been taken away. Your history, you know, it's going to basically. If you take Chelsea history, you have before Roman, after Roman. So all of the bits and pieces, you know, the Ken Bates doing the Chelsea Village, doing up the stadium, that helped persuade Roman to buy the club. Being in the Champions League instead of the UEFA Cup, helped Roman buy the club. So in other words, the fact that they were £200 million in debt, that's detail. You can wipe that £200 million. He could do that in the stroke of a pen. And he did. And then he had this Champions League Chelsea team, and then he threw the money at it. With Man City. Nothing in Man City's history compares to what they've done since Abu Dhabi have taken over. They, are, they win the league on a regular basis they are constantly in the top four they are constantly competing the back end of Europe which Man City have never done in their history they'd never been that consistent for that long they'd been great city teams but they they'd either win the league and then get relegated as they did in the 30s or they would win the league and then just get drop into the lower half of the table to sit the year after so there was always that intrinsic quality that was Man City and that you knew what that was and what that meant as a fan. And you have the same with Newcastle. You, when it's great, it is really great. Yes, there are far, you know, there are barren years, but that was what made you a Newcastle fan. That was part of the badge of honour, which is now gone. Your history now is gone. It's now going to be replaced by a different history, which is that it's going to have you know, elements of Newcastle. Yeah, you know, the Newcastle of. That was almost wish fulfilment. It was, you know, Sir John Hall throwing money at it. And in, in a way, it's almost more special because it wasn't going to last forever. And so that, that's why the sort of the, the comeback of, you know, Bobby Robson coming back and having that last kind of, you know, run of success where they weren't quite going for the title. They were there or thereabouts was so interesting. So you'd have the glory years of Keegan, which he knew was going to burn out because Keegan does. That's what he does. 
and you then had this kind of really interesting Newcastle team. You had Shearer and Bellamy up front. You had Genus. You had Gary Speed. You had Given. But now that doesn't really matter. What actually matters is that Newcastle have the you know have the Keegan history that they can use. That the Saudis can use. So they, as I've said, they're going to weaponize your longing, your desire to win something, to go up Wembley Way with you know, a trophy in your hands, to be back in Europe, to be a big player again, to have that you know, electric atmosphere at St. James's Park on a European night. But the real question that you have that Newcastle fans need to ask themselves, is it worth it? Is it worth becoming a political actor? Because that's what Newcastle United are. They're going to be the friendly face of the Saudis. So every time you won't be able, you won't, you're not going to criticise them for you know cutting up Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post journalist. So that when people see St James's Park in rapture with the fans screaming and and the celebrations for you know another great bit of Newcastle football. And the journey back to the top levels of English and European football. People are going to say, well, they can't be that bad. Look at how much money they spent in the local area. Look at all of the youth centres that they've done up. Look at the, how well they play football. Look how exciting it is. But it's no longer your club. It's their club. And you are now a, a tool of their sports washing. You're a tool of the PR that will allow the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia to to fulfil its geopolitical goals. And is that worth it, Newcastle United fans, to give up your club for that? Even if it is huge amounts of success, is it your club still? Thank you for listening.